Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and this month we're continuing the old school ways by doing segments with three authors. I'll be speaking with Joseph Epstein about his new book, Fred Astaire. But John Gilgood once said the, the sign of a male dancer is how good he can make, uh, the quality of a male dancer is how good he can make his partner look. And I think Fred Astaire was awfully good at that. Jessica Helfand about her new book, Scrapbooks, An American History. I read a lot, and, and it troubles me that women today making scrapbooks have a great concern about getting it right. These women didn't care about getting it right, they just did it, and it has a sort of a joy to it and a mesmerizing quality to it because sometimes they got it so wrong. And it's very endearing and very personal and very human to have that kind of fallibility be so evident on the page of a snap. And new contributor Gordon Buffong will be speaking with Maurice Isserman about the new book, Fallen Giants, a history of Himalayan mountaineering from the age of empire to the age of extremes. They may be strong individually, they you know, train in the gym to get ready, uh, but they don't have the mountain sense that previous generations of mountaineers brought to uh, their project and uh, sometimes uh, pay for it with their lives. Stay tuned. Can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little. That was the famous, though apocryphal, RKO screen test report on Fred Astaire. Over the next 50 years, Fred Astaire became one of the greatest dancers of the 20th century, as well as one of the most beloved interpreters of the great American songbook. In this new entry into Yale University Press's Icons of America series, Joseph Epstein looks at the screen career of Fred Astaire and gives the reader a sense of where the Astaire magic came from. Joseph Epstein is the author of, among other books, Snobbery, Friendship, and Fabulous Small Jews. He's been editor of American Scholar and has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Commentary, Town and Country, and other magazines. Joe Epstein, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Great pleasure. It's been over 50 years since Fred Astaire danced in a film. So if I have never seen him dance, if I type his name into YouTube and a bunch of his numbers come up, which one should I watch to understand why he's considered one of the greatest dancers America has ever produced? YouTube is, is very rich, as you probably have noted, in, in uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers material. I would say there are maybe three or four that I would watch. I, to see him as a great soloist, which means chiefly as a kind of tap dancer with some balletic movement, I would look at uh, putting on the wrist, put, putting I, uh, on the wrist, I forgive my pronouncing that G in there, putting on the wrist, which is marvelous stuff. If you want to see him as a great um, couples dancer, I would say that perhaps the, uh, one of the best things to watch would be uh, his dancing with Ginger Rogers and Cheek to Cheek. There's a little side story to that, which, uh, well, why don't I just tell it directly? In that, in that particular number, the Ginger Rogers wore a blue dress with lots of feathers, which Fred Astaire and the director of the movie, Mark Sandrich, objected to. Uh, but Ginger Rogers and her mother were adamant, so she wore the dress. And throughout all the various takes of the number, feathers were, according to Astaire, were flying up his nose, were sticking in his ears. 
And as I watch it, I always look for those feathers, but I, I can't seem to find them. Anyhow, it, uh, it, it's, an, it's an interesting side bit. If you want to see Fred Astaire as a sort of great tap dancer, you might watch the uh, YouTube version of his, of his Dancing with Eleanor Powell, who was a great, uh, maybe the best of all female dancers. Though I don't think she and Fred Astaire are, I think, the best in, in their, uh, as male and female were in the best as a couple. So I think that would give you a, 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 a rough good idea. If you want to see also maybe one other in swing time, there's a lovely number of Fred Astaire and Ginger uh, Rogers dancing that's a kind of comic dance that turns out to be uh, just you know pure virtuosity at the end. That's a fact. I will throw in my two bits. Um, and these are things that I actually got from your book. Uh, I posted on my Facebook page the uh, I'll Be Too Hard to Handle uh, from uh, Roberta, which I thought was just one of a incredibly fun dance that they did. Yeah, it is. That's one of, you know, Arlene Crochet says that that's when they first came alive as, as, a, as a couple. That was sort of the watershed moment when they knew how good they were. And the other thing I actually just watched before this interview on YouTube was the dance he did with Judy Garland, A Couple of Swells, which I laughed my head off over. That's a marvelous dance. And, you know, when, well, I say in the book that I think that's the only dance in which somehow uh, the woman topped him. I think she, she had so much magic uh, on the screen that in that dance, I think you, you sort of watch her even more than you do him. Uh, John Gilgood, you would, I don't know if you came across this uh, in the book, but John Gilgood once said the, the sign of a male dancer is how good he can make, uh, the quality of a male dancer is how good he can make his partner look. And I think Fred Astaire was awfully good at that. But somehow, even though he was so good at it, you, you're watching Fred Astaire so much of the time. That's the one dance uh, with Judy Garland and we're a couple of swells. But I think your eye goes right to Judy, Judy Garland. She's so marvelous at it. You know, they were supposed to make two other pictures together. And uh, because of her, what, what Hollywood called personal problems, which really meant depression and drinking and other sadness, they didn't get to make those movies, which is a great, great shame. Let's take a step back. There are people who are listening to this who have heard of Fred Astaire but haven't seen anything. We talked about YouTube. There's some who may know a little bit about him. And something I learned from your book is that we do not have record of his arguably greatest partner, which was his sister, Adela Astaire, who seemed to be a very different person than Fred. How would you, how would you talk about their separate personalities? Well, Adele, Adele was the great uh, live wire of the two. She, uh, she was the great natural. She was great. She was... I don't know if she was a great beauty, but she was somebody that uh, just attracted men. She was a great sort of sex pot, you know, and people, uh, if Adele was there, you know, Yale boys turned out in great numbers to uh, see her shows. And uh, she was also a very great live wire uh, and was very opinionated in, in, in always in interesting ways, which Fred Astaire was not. Fred Astaire was always very reticent. Uh, held back, never wanted to talk about himself. Adele was just the opposite. Adele was also courageous in a way. You know, there's a story that Fred Astaire was Jewish. Uh, somebody said uh, I, there was a conference on Fred Astaire, if you can imagine, at Oxford, and uh, somebody did a genealogy and said, you know, in Austria, three generations back, there was a Jewish great-grandfather or something like that. But he, he was he considered himself non-Jewish, as did Adele. 
But in the 30s, somebody uh, insulted Adele's friend, Lily Palmer, the Austrian actress, uh, gave an anti-Semitic crack about her. And Adele said, you better take that back because I'm Jewish too. And of course she wasn't, but she was just defending her friend. But that gives you a kind of feeling for Adele there. She was courageous and gutsy and uh, the kind of uh, young woman that, you know, if, if uh, every young man would have liked to have had a friendship with. When people think Fred Astaire, people automatically think apart from dancing. He had kind of a debonair way about him. And yet his circumstances of his upbringing were about as far away from that as you could talk about. How did he go from a boyhood in Omaha to being considered one of the great uh, aristocrats of America. Yes. Well, I think some of this had to do, I think, with his mother. Uh, you know, they grew up, I, his father was a beer salesman and not a very successful one. He was, a, he was an Austrian immigrant. Uh, Frederick Austerlitz was, was the father's name and the family name originally. And uh, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, I think the Stair family felt the, uh, the snobbery of uh, middle and upper middle class uh, society as it then was in the first decade of the last century. And uh, I think the mother felt uh, she, we had to clear out of here, out of Omaha. And she uh, took Adele and Fred to New York. And once uh, where they, the idea was to get a career for Adele, who was sort of natu- a natural. And then Fred thought it was along for the ride, as he puts it in his autobiography. Uh, then they, they go on the stage, it's a very hard slog, and then pretty soon they slowly catch on as a brother and sister act. But the mother, I think, had a kind of social sense, and she would uh, take them to sort of what we then into the called posh resorts of the day, and suddenly, uh, you know, Ivy League boys are chasing Adele, and uh, Fred is dressing uh, rather better. And I think the great turning point is they go to England, and there are tremendous hits in England. So much so uh, that the Prince of Wales is inviting them to dinner. And it, uh, Fred became, I think it's fair to say, mildly Anglo, Anglophile. Uh, he buys a baby Rolls Royce. Uh, he's dressing in Savile Row. Uh, and suddenly he's this very elegant uh, character. Uh, although the question of Fred Astaire being an aristocrat is a very complicated one in the sense that... Um, Oh, I should go on and say he married, when he eventually married in his early 30s, he married a woman who was herself, uh, as we used to say in those days, a socialite. You don't hear that word very much anymore, but she was connected with the capital S society in those days. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of snobbery to Fred Astaire, but I I think he liked the posh life, and uh, he certainly gave off rays of poshness, you know, in his clothes and his dancing and his manner. So we've talked about Adele. Uh, Ginger Rogers is the partner that he's probably best known to work with. Uh, physically, I got a sense that Adele and Ginger were about the same size, and so maybe that helped him work with her. But how would you describe the professional relationship between Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating and complicated one, I think. Uh, when you read the, the two autobiographies that each, each dancer wrote, uh, well, in each case, uh, he or she writes in a kind of very cool way about the other. Uh, or in fact, you know, Fred is there, needed Ginger Rogers, and, and she needed him. And their probably greatest claim to fame is, is uh, interweaving, uh, interwoven between the two of them. 
But I think uh, that Fred Astaire was not, I don't think they were mad about each other. I think there was a kind of distant feeling between them. In fact, after Fred Astaire made the first two movies with Ginger Rogers, he wanted out of the partnership. He didn't want to be uh, connected to uh, one partner. And she, who had wider ambitions, as you know, she later went on to win an Oscar for her role in Kitty Foyle, was a very good comedian on her own, also felt that Fred Astaire was always sort of the main, the main feature in their movies together. Uh, so I, it, one of the magical things about this is you have these two people who are not exactly nuts about each other. I, I wouldn't go so far as they disliked each other. I don't think that was the case at all. But they were less than um, really close friends. And yet together they made this sort of magic couple. Uh, partly because they, they they, she had the perfect body for him, the perfect size. Uh, dance critics talk about the line of, of dance. It's her body uh, and his sort of formed these perfect lines. And, and that, that helped a great deal. She was also a very considerable actress. Uh, you know, it takes real acting ability to have somebody a love song to you six inches away from your face and, and, and make believe that you believe that she could do all that kind of thing well. She wasn't a great singer, but she sang well enough for what she did. Uh, she wasn't really a, uh, initially a great dancer. She was a, a Charleston champion from, from Texas. And I think Fred Astaire trained her in, in many ways to be the perfect partner for him. You know, the, the feminist line about all this, as you probably know, is... Uh, What's so great about Fred Astaire? Uh, Ginger Rogers did everything he did, but backwards and in high heels. And there's something to it, I suppose. But I, I do think that he he was great force in, in training. He was a he was a demon for rehearsing and working over and over again. And he worked her especially hard, and I think, of course, that it paid off great. Yeah, but those rehearsals also, because it's something people might not think who follow Hollywood today, since. He rehearsed so much that that really kind of affected her career into how many movies that she could take. Because the Hollywood production system back then, Fred Astaire seemed to be an anomaly in how many movies he was allowed to put out as opposed to an actress like Ginger Rogers. Exactly right. She, in fact, he, when Fred Astaire, the only trouble he ever gave any of the producers or any of the studios was he wanted more time for rehearsal, more and more. He was a great, great warrior. Uh, a warrior, I think I say in the book, is another name for a perfectionist. He just wanted everything as, as perfect as he could get it, which which was very hard on his partners and I'm sure hard on himself. He, had no, he knew no other way to go about it. Fred Astaire is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Joseph Epstein, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcasts. I don't tend to reveal very much of myself on this show, but here's a secret I rarely tell. I am very bad with cutting and pasting, and I have been since I was a little boy, which is why I'm always impressed with those who have the ability to do it well. In her new book, Scrapbooks in American History, Jessica Helfen not only shows us examples of some amazing scrapbooks, but she looks at how scrapbooks developed during the 20th century and what they can tell us about their creators and the times they lived in. Jessica Helfen, thank you so much for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thank you so much for having me. While reading scrapbooks in American history, I kept thinking about how scrapbooks combine social history, biography, and visual art. And I want to start with the social history. How did the advent of these pre-printed commercial scrapbooks change the nature of what was saved for people? Well, I think it's a 
an interesting question because it, what it did, I think, over time is it sort of sanctioned what people saved. Uh, what I found in my research um, for the book was that over the course of the first half of the 20th century, publishers caught on to the idea that they could provide these kind of repositories of material with subject headings and rubrics and pages for certain things. And people became very comfortable, I think, over time looking ahead to what they might deem memory worthy, which is a very unusual thing. You can't just have your own memories, but you suddenly have a book that says my best friends or my favorite meals or where I went for my summer vacation. And so I think in some sense, there was a kind of a, a, a way over time that these things became more standardized and arguably less interesting. If you take a look at the overall history, because you really kind of pick up the scrapbooking at least I got it, kind of the end of the 19th century and leading up to kind of the 50s, 60s, and even today. Uh, was there a change in what people felt comfortable scrapbooking, say, at the beginning of this term, the late Victorian period, really through the 20s and 30s? Yes, I think that's, that there was a very much a trajectory, and, and probably it could be traced to evolutions in printing. I was really opposed just on a personal basis to organizing my book around those technological feats that made it possible, for example, to print in black and white in the early 19th century and by the end of the 19th century, print in color. Although it's certainly reflected in the scrapbooks that people kept. If you look at things from the 18th and early 19th century, people just saved clippings. They became these, these very kind of, in a sense, boring, or, or I should at least say um, monotone, monochromatic books in which people just saved black and white clippings from the paper, whereas by the end of the 19th century, color chromolithography made it possible to save color scraps. And suddenly there was this sort of burst of scrapbooks that were only images. And some people organized them more than others. You, lots of people just saved flowers or babies or single subjects of, of things that were of interest to them. Later they saved ads. In the early 20th century they saved you know, ads for Campbell's soup or uh, pictures with recipes of soup, soup things or, or things that interested them in, in terms of their domestic lives. Um, but they, they weren't so interesting to me because they didn't have that additional element of handwriting and objects and, and the real sort of personal touch of the individual. But they were very much, I think, impacted by what was possible in the world. The Sunday papers only printed color once a week, so it was a very special thing to say. Is it fair to say that maybe they also became a bit more diaristic as time went by? And I'm thinking about the relationship. If you were to come to me before I read this book and someone said, well, if you want to take a guess who made a scrapbook, would you guess a man or a woman? I'd say probably a woman. And as women's, women's roles changed throughout that time, I got a sense, and maybe it's from the books you chose or maybe there's a longer uh, theme to it, that they, the topics that ended up being scrapbook went from something that you could show your know, husband or whatever to some degrees maybe a little bit more private. Is that, a, is that a fair reading? Um, you know, I think it's, it's very difficult to say uh, for anyone, and I certainly would not profess to know whether these scrapbooks, that certainly the ones that I chose, were intended for public or private consumption. Um, although I would say, to answer the first part of your question, the thing for me that really distinguishes the diary from the scrapbook is that the diary tends to be really chronologically placed. I mean, you have a, you have a book with a calendar, and you save something every day or you write something every day, and it, it tends to really move in a single direction. The beauty of scrapbooks is that they had none of that chronology. They had none of that order. They, people go in and they annotate, they go backwards, they go forward. And so it raises the issue of the idea of the biography being not a linear progression of events. 
um, as we often experience it or look at a biography, you see, you know, he was born, he died. But in fact, these scrapbooks are all over the place. And that's as part of what makes them so dynamic, I think, is that they are uh, left to the person who is the author of them to determine what's the most important thing on any given day and whether the days of the week even belong being presented in order. The second part of your question, um, if, I, if I hear you correctly, I, I think that Probably you could put a lens on the world that says what people thought was valuable is revealed in their scrapbooks. I certainly found a great deal of social history going going through these early 20th century books, and I became acquainted, for example, or, or used to after a while, that the notion that a young girl might not write about cu- uh, current events the way someone older would because that wasn't part of her schoolgirl orbit. That said, if you look at the gender split, it's very interesting because I think in college, what I found that books made by, by high school and college students tended to have the same values. So I have, I have scrapbooks by men that saved pennants, that saved dance cards, that maybe saved more pictures of girls, and the girls' scrapbooks saved more pictures of boys. But I think they tended to value the same thing because generationally they participated in the same basic group. As they got older, and scrapbooks of older people, I think, are much more revealing in terms of, of where their values lay. Um, and, and, in, and what I found, and it's a, it's, as an empirical study, it's, it's hardly scientific, but I found that the men's scrapbooks were much harder to crack, much more idiosyncratic, much less revealing of what was really going on. So, for example, I, I tell the story of a man named Nixon Nerdlinger, was a theater owner from Philadelphia who took a grand tour in about 1910, 1912, went all over Europe with his wife of some 20 or 30 years. She's never mentioned. There's nothing really emotional or personal or specific in the scrapbook. Uh, and when he gets back, I researched him uh, and found out that when he got back, he divorced her, married Miss St. Louis of 1922, moved to France, married her, had two children, and she shot him seven years later in their house on the French Riviera and was later acquitted by a jury of seven bachelors because she was beautiful and he was a Jew during a period of great anti-Semitism in France. Fascinating story. Fascinating person. Really layered, you know, emotional life. None of it's evident in the scrapbook. Now, whereas on the other side, there's a man named Halsey Philbrook, who was a congressman from Hartford, who loved poetry. And he kept a scrapbook of his poems that he misplaced. And in the year when she misplaced this book, which was right around the turn of the century, the Hartford Current reported more than once on the fact that he was just devastated by the loss of the scrapbook that was so meaningful to him because he used to revisit it just to read the poems. So here you've got, on the one hand, a man who's using just clippings from the paper of poetry as something that's extremely meaningful to him and emotional. And then you've got a man who's saving a scrapbook full of colors, scraps of beautiful trips he's taken to Morocco and, and to all throughout Africa and Asia, who has sort of a, you know, is bereft of emotional life in terms of, of what you would expect to see in a scrapbook that's so full of adventure. Whereas I, I think in women's scrapbooks, if I could generalize, what you see is much more what you get. If they're feeling passionate about the passing of the 19th Amendment, you're going to see it. If you're feeling upset about the fact that, you know, that Lindbergh kidnapping occurred and this poor child is, is now, you know, away from his beautiful family, it's going to be expressed in the pages of the scrapbook. Were there any scrapbooks that you could tell the person's specific visual choices and the aesthetic of the book uh, lended 
a different way to read the scrapbook. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, when you think, when I think of a scrapbook, because I'm, again, the last person you ever want to have your child learn to cut and paste, I would be a very linear, kind of like measure things out. And I understand there are people that may have done some interesting things, but did you ever come across a scrapbook where it's obvious that this person was making very specific visual aesthetic choices and how the information was presented that added a layer to their story? Uh, several times, and I'll give you some examples. There's a woman named Dorothy Abraham, whose scrapbook is on my website and in my book, uh, who lived in about in, uh, around between the wars in Pittsburgh, and she was a twin. She kept a beautiful scrapbook, meticulous scrapbook, but also filled with wonderful things. She had a thread in her scrapbook in which she took a million different things, a piece of chalk, her, scra- her shorthand homework, her a report card, a note from a friend, a pressed flower, and everything is on this two-page spread, folded, so that you have to unfold it like a kind of origami. And the construction is like something that Joseph Boyce would have done, like some wonderful, constructed, three-dimensional evocation of time and space in one person's life. And I couldn't help but think going through her scrapbook that it was you could see her struggling with, she had this brother who was her twin who was, I think, an athlete, a great athlete at school, and she was probably the little wallflower in that you know, tandem relationship. And you can see her sort of struggling with privacy and being public and who she was. And this little origami secretive construction, you know, which is so beautiful, felt like this sort of tentative expression of what was, in fact, a very rich, layered life. Over the course of her scrapbook, things get more and more illustrated. Obviously, there were people who kept scrapbooks whose artistic abilities led them to make things that were more expressive. But I think more specifically what's interesting in light of your question and in light of what I see today in contemporary scrapbooking is that people weren't afraid to make mistakes. They ripped things out. They tore things out. They, I have a wonderful scrapbook from a girl in Chicago during Prohibition in which he lists a whole long laundry list of different cocktails. Everything smelled wrong. It's so adorable. She like probably had her first sip of champagne, which she spelled like the city in um, uh, Illinois. Does it A I G N instead of A G N E? But it's all written in pencil, so it's sort of this, you know, the, the pencil written as opposed to in pen and bold is this, is this evocative reminder in form that matches the content of how risque it must have been to talk about alcohol in the pages of your scrapbook. You know, a page later, she has this thing called the Flapper's Prayer, which she very boldly is, is proud to be a flapper. That's in ink. That's printed. That's big. So you start to see people's placement, juxtaposition, all the kinds of things that artists and designers make choices about all the time. These are not informed choices, but they're original choices. They're individual choices. They're not doing it because uh, you know they were told to in a class. They're not doing it because they were told to on a website. They're not. I, I read a lot, and, and it troubles me that women today making scrapbooks have a great concern about getting it right. These women didn't care about getting it right. They just did it, and it has a sort of a joy to it and a mesmerizing quality to it because sometimes they got it so wrong, and it's very endearing and very personal and very human to have that kind of fallibility be so evident on the page of a scrapbook. Scrapbooks in American History is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Jessica Helfand, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcasts. The first successful ascent of Mount Everest in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa teammate, Tenzing Norgay, is a familiar saga. But less well-known are the tales of many other adventurers who also came to test their skills and courage against the world's highest and most dangerous mountains. In the new book, Fallen Giants, a history of Himalayan mountaineering from the age of empire to the age of extremes, 
Historians Marie Sisserman and Stuart Weaver present the first comprehensive history of Himalayan mountaineering in 50 years. New contributor Gordon Buffong interviews Marie Sisserman about the stories and the expeditions that became legendary. Marie Sisserman is the James L. Ferguson Professor of History at Hamilton College. Morris Sisserman, thank you for talking to Yale University Press podcast. Happy to do it. Thank you. Um, you've uh, written, along with Stuart uh, Weaver, the book Fallen Giants, A History of Himalayan Mountaineering from the Age of Empire to the Age of Extremes. Um, and let's start with uh, who, who are the great figures of Himalayan mountaineering? Well, the history of Himalayan mountaineering um, is a fairly recent history. It starts in the late 19th century. Uh, that is to say, people had uh, approached the Himalayas before, and of course there were the local people living in their shadow, um, but they didn't uh, think about climbing the mountains for their own sake. In one sense, uh, Himalayan mountaineering is uh, a spin-off from European alpine mountaineering, and once uh, Europeans, and especially the British, had uh, climbed most of the peaks in the Alps, they looked for new challenges on the horizons. Uh, and, uh, of course, at that point, India, which incorporated uh, a lot of other places in those days, including what we now think of as Pakistan, uh, was home to a good portion of, of the Himalaya range. So um, in the late 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, European climbers began to uh, approach the Himalayas and uh, map their outskirts and, of course, uh, compete to get to the summit of these, these great peaks. So um, some of the early figures, uh, Martin Conway uh, was on the Nanga Parbat in the 1890s, um, and then, of course, uh, the mountaineering expeditions really take off in the aftermath of the First World War, uh, when the British get access for the first time through Tibet to Everest, and there, of course, the most famous figures are George Lee Mallory and Sandy Irvine, who disappeared uh, on their attempt to reach the summit of Everest in 1924. Uh, well, why don't you um, uh, tell us more about uh, Mallory? Your book uh, begins uh, rather strikingly with the recovery of Mallory's body on Everest. Um, what, uh, what was the impact of uh, Mallory's loss and uh, the impact to the British Empire of uh, the loss of such a person? begin with Mallory, and that seems both a good beginning point and ending point. Uh, the mystery of what happened to Mallory was uh, solved when Conrad Anker found his body uh, on the north face of the mountain in 1999. Of course, we still don't know, and there are many competing theories of whether he and Irvine uh, reached the summit or not on that day in 1924. Um, Mallory's death, uh, coming so soon after the end of the First World War, was celebrated in England as uh, a uh, kind of redemptive sacrifice, like the, the loss of an entire generation of, of uh, young British men on the, on the Western Front, and uh, he was seen as embodying the spirit of, of um, uh, national ambition, uh, which was, of course, not his self-conception at all. He didn't climb to the greater glory of Britain. He climbed because he loved climbing, and he was a kind of an eccentric figure in the um, uh, circles he traveled in. Um, but uh, he certainly inspired uh, subsequent generations to, to go and complete the job that, that he had begun. You, you talk about uh, the 
the attachment that uh, Mallory's death uh, created for the British uh, relative to the climbing of Everest. Uh, Everest, uh, as you talk about, was ultimately summited by uh, Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing Norgay. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about them? It's it's kind of interesting that uh, they represent the British summiting, but neither of uh, neither of them were themselves uh, English or Scottish. Or that's correct. And in fact, Tenzing Norgay came close to climbing the mountain the previous year in 1952 with a Swiss expedition. He was only a few hundred vertical feet short of the summit, but of course they were the crucial few hundred feet. Uh, he had been on a number of British expeditions starting in the 1930s and kind of worked his way up the order of Sherpas, and his, his talents were recognized, uh, particularly uh, after the Second World War, that he was himself an exceptional climber, uh, exceptional stamina and strength. Um, so when the British set off in 1953, they, they really wanted him to be the Sirdar, or the, the Sherpa leader, uh, climbing leader on the mountain. And uh, Hillary uh, had also been on uh, a couple of previous uh, British expeditions, uh, one uh, on an Everest reconnaissance that didn't intend to get up the mountain, but wanted to uh, scout the route back in 1951. And then again, uh, he went with a group of top British climbers to attempt the second mountain, Cho Oyo, which is about 20 miles to the northwest of Everest, in 1952. So they were both um, up-and-coming figures in climbing circles. Uh, And when the British expedition set off, uh, it seemed natural to bring them along. I I think uh, John Hunt, the the expedition leader, recognized their talents, thought they might be the, the lead team. But um, the day, two days before they got to the summit, he had sent two British climbers uh, to get there, and uh, they made it all the way to the south summit. They were very close, but they, too, ran out of time, and oxygen had to turn back. So in the end, this, this British expedition's triumph was carried out by a, a Sherpa and a New Zealander, but uh, then uh, at least it was a Commonwealth uh, victory. Uh, excellent. Uh, the... There's an interesting uh, story that that's told about the summoning of, Ev- of Everett, um, where uh, issues of urination appear rather cheekily in the story. Uh, it seems sort of somewhat at the beginning of the process and at the end. Uh, uh, could you elaborate, please? Well, um, Edmund Hillary uh, found himself at the summit of Everest, and it was the first flat place he'd been all day. And he'd drunk a lot of tea the previous night, uh, uh, so he would be hydrated, and he had to do his natural business there on the summit. That's not something that got written up in the uh, uh, official expedition account. But when you think about it, um, uh, climbers are human, and they have to take care of their business on on the mountain slopes. Uh, The problem, of course, uh, is when you only have one climber up there or two climbers uh, or one expedition in a season, you're not uh, leaving behind much human waste. But uh, when you have hundreds and hundreds of climbers, as you do now on Everest, that nearly 300 summited uh, this year alone, and of course many more were also on the mountain, it creates a massive waste um, management problem. Uh, And so uh, now the Nepalese government has instituted strict rules about, certainly about base camp and what happens with excrement. Uh, It has to be packed out from the mountain. It can't just be littered on the the slopes. Everest, of course, has another kind of human waste. Uh, There are uh, some hundred or so uh, bodies littered on the mountainside, and some of them have been there for so long they've become kind of landmarks, uh, and people you know, recognize what stage they are in the ascent of the mountain by which frozen corpse they've just passed by. 
It's uh, interesting also in the book you, you speak about uh, the role that uh, Nazism or uh, I guess at least uh, Nazi politics may have played in uh, one of the, uh, some of the early expeditions. You... Yes, in, in the 1930s, uh, Nanga Parbat was uh, uh, considered the German mountain. Yeah, it had been the German mountain from before the Nazi regime, but the Nazis kind of took it over, and they really saw this as a matter of national uh, prestige. And so we uh, reprint in the book a, a, a picture from, uh, I think it was the 1934 Nanga Parbat expedition with uh, the swastika flying over uh, the German base camp uh, on the side of Nanga Parbat. Uh, the British and the Americans tended to look down on the German climbers uh, in the 1930s, both in the Alps and in uh, uh, the Himalaya, thinking that they were um, out there to do or die, that they were reckless in the pursuit of uh, the summit and, and uh, too willing to sacrifice human life. Of course, British expeditions and American expeditions also saw the deaths of a number of climbers and, and Sherpas in those those same years, um, what uh, the Germans did exemplify was a kind of boldness in climbing technique that after the war would become much more common uh, and the kind of old standards of, of safety or caution um, increasingly were seen as relics uh, in, the, in the post-war era. The climbers were simply willing to take bigger risks on, on the bigger mountains than they had been before. Your uh, book talks about uh, the steep tragedy in, in Himalayan expeditions. That is that there is uh, there's quite a bit of uh, loss of life. Um, I'm wondering if uh, if there there is something about uh, contemporary tra- uh, tragedies that might speak to the way in which the mountain is being climbed now. Well, uh, climbing these these giant peaks is inherently dangerous, and, and there's no way to, to take the danger out of it. I mean, the risk is, uh, for some, part of the appeal, of course, uh, because if, if there was no risk, that everybody could do it. Um, it seems to me that, that the, the scale of tragedy uh, is greater now just because we have more people on the mountain, more people getting in the way of, of others as they attempt to ascend and then descend to slowing down progress on on the mountainside. But then uh, there were uh, moments in, in the 1920s and 1930s when six, seven, ten mountaineers would lose their lives in, in one instant when an avalanche swept down, which is something you can never uh, control. And most recently we saw that happen uh, this summer on uh, K2 when uh, a number of uh, climbers had successfully summited and were coming down, and, and uh, suddenly a uh, ice tower collapsed on them and uh, uh, led to a large number of deaths. So um, you are always going to have deaths on on the mountain. I think what may be new now is that, that some of the people who are getting caught up in these tragedies uh, essentially don't belong where they are. They haven't earned... Uh, their passage to the summit of the mountain through experience. They've they've paid for their passage. They may be strong individually. They train in the gym to get ready, uh, but they don't have the mountain sense that previous generations of mountaineers brought to uh, their project and uh, sometimes uh, pay for it with their lives. Fallen Giants, A History of Himalayan Mountaineering from the Age of Empire to the Age of Extremes is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Maurice Hisserman, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcasts. 
You may have heard recently about the recent unpleasantness in the financial markets and be thinking to yourself, now, where can I go for a bit of inexpensive entertainment to take my mind off of all of this? Well, you can't go wrong by picking up a book at the Yale University Press Book Sale. Just go on over to www.yalebooks.com, click on the sale banner that is on the main page, and write out the financial storms with a Yale University Press Book. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go directly to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Heather Doria is the executive producer. Gordon Buffon conducted the interview with Marie Sisserman, and the show was edited by Stephen Cray. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.